Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Light Unto My Path podcast. I'm your host Howard Sides. Uh, today we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 17, we are going to focus today on uh, verse number 3. <clears throat> and we uh, talked about the uh, sections of this chapter uh, we'll kind of briefly go over that uh, verses 1 through 6 talks about the Babylonian mother the Babylonian mother and then verse 7 down through 18 is the Babylonian monster and uh, we're in this first section of the first six verses and it is divided up into five parts where verses 1 and 2 we covered in the last podcast talked about her universal power, her universal power. Uh, today we'll be in verse 3, which will talk about her unique position. Her unique position. Uh, the third section uh, will be the first part of verse 4, which is her unlimited prosperity. The fourth part is, is the rest of verse 4 and verse 5, her unholy passions. And then verse 6 is the last one, her untold persecutions. Now, in uh, today's portion here in verse 3, her unique position uh, is going to describe this position in four different ways. Uh, her cruelty towards man, her hostility towards God, his cruelty toward man, and his hostility towards God. And so we'll uh, discuss those a little bit further as we get into the podcast today. Uh, so let's just read uh, the first three verses of chapter 17, and that'll get us uh, in, into the verse that we need today, okay? All right, Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman <clears throat> sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names and blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns and th that verse right there kind of gives a description of one of the reasons i think a lot of people are intimidated by the book of revelation and i've talked about it quite a bit uh when i say people are intimidated I i'm really focused on many christians uh themselves are intimidated by the book of revelation it talks about seven heads and ten horns and all of this sort of thing, and and I'm not being critical of anybody, but uh, some people, I, and I went through this myself uh, for a long time before I, I had someone sit down and explain it to me, and, and that's one reason I put this podcast on was when I first started, I wanted to teach people how to study the Bible themselves. I didn't want it to be uh, where... People rely on certain individuals to tell them what the Bible says. Hey, that's where we got into trouble in the first place. That's that's how the Catholic Church got the power that it had. 
it held the power of translating the Bible because it was in a Latin language which common man couldn't understand, couldn't read and translate for themselves. And so common man thought to put that Bible in the English, the English language so common man could discern and understand through the Holy Spirit what the Bible said itself. So I, I don't want you to trust in what I say. I want you to be able to look it up for yourself. But that, that's what my point is there. You get into phrases like seven heads and, and ten horns, and, and people don't know how to investigate that. They don't know how to research that. They don't know how to study things like that. And so they just become turned off by portions of Scripture like the book of Revelation. And for the vast majority, uh, well, I don't want to use the term vast majority, but for a large portion of people that I have met, uh, they stay away from the book of Revelation. For that reason, it, it seems to be intimidating. And that is not at all why uh, Jesus Christ uh, had this revelation and had John write it. It, it was to make things clear. It, it was that we should know so that we could know. And so that's why we're here. We're breaking it down. We're studying ourselves as a group. Um, but I want you to know that you have uh, the tools available uh, to study this stuff for yourself. I'm telling you what, I, you know, we're discussing on here what I have found, uh, some things that, that I, I have had revealed to me, um, not through some miracle or thing like that. This is just through the uh, books that I've read, through the Holy Spirit leading me this way. Um, and, and that's what it's all about. And so uh, it, it's, it's not about what I think. I, I just kind of put the idea out there and then, and then you Study it for yourself. You know, don't take man's word for it. Um, study it for yourself. We're just, we're just kind of here to help each other out. That, that's all it is. All right. Okay, so her unique position here in verse 3. Uh, first of all, here in the first part of verse 3, we see uh, her cruelty towards men. Her cruelty towards men. It says, so he carried me away in the spirit into uh, the wilderness. All right, so note that the, the scene portrayed here in verses 1 through 6 goes back in time once again to give us a background and describes the situation in the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Chapter 18 does the same thing in verses 1 through 8. Uh, then the remaining verses of both chapters describe how they end. Chapter 17 for the apostate church and chapter 18 for the Gentile world power, the Babylonian religious system, and then the Babylonian political or governmental system. Uh, <clears throat> chapter 13 describes events unfolding when the Antichrist takes control of the world power, destroys the apostate church, and issues in the second half the second three and a half years, also called the Great Tribulation, the second half of the Tribulation, taking complete control of both aspects. And uh, a lot of people tend to forget that. that They think the Antichrist and the Beast are together through the entire thing. Uh, the Beast is the false prophet, but the religious system, the actual system itself, uh, 
does gain power and come up together. Uh, you could describe it as the worldwide church. I mean, I mean that's what it's going to end up being, uh, whether the name indicates what it is today or not. That that's what it's going to be. It's the worldwide church, is what it will end up being. Uh, and and the Antichrist uses it as a tool and allows it to grow and to flourish till uh, the point comes when. Uh, he takes the power for himself and he destroys the system and becomes the focus of the worship itself. And, and so that's what it is. This, this has nothing to do with the false. Well, I don't say it has nothing to do with the false prophet. Of course, the false prophet uh, is training or programming or uh, forcing people into this system in the first place. But uh, I think he's still around after the destruction of chapter 17. Um, and I think the uh, when it talks about throwing the Antichrist and, and the false prophet into the lake of fire together, he's still around, but the system has been replaced by the Antichrist himself. He is in control of both systems, and, and that's what it is. Now, note uh, that this is the second time we are told of a woman in the wilderness, Okay, it says, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. It, it goes back to chapter 12, where we saw there was another woman that went into the wilderness. Uh, Revelation 12, verse 6 says, and the woman fled into the wilderness, uh, where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. And then later on in chapter 12 and verse 14, it says, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. That's three and a half years. Uh, chapter 12, the woman is, a nation, is the nation of Israel fleeing into the wilderness to escape persecution by Satan. But obviously here in verse uh, chapter 17, this woman is not Israel, but rather the Babylonian religious mystery and the commercial system. Now, could it be that John was taken into this wilderness to compare the conditions of the two and describe the differences between them for us? Now, while this, rev, uh, this wilderness represents the result of what the world will be like under her rule, uh, it also shows her fate as well. When the beast takes over as the lone power, she will end up as a wilderness. Uh, now, I wanted to read something for you uh, that I had read. It's from a man my, by the name of Edward Gibbon. Edward Gibbon, G-I-B-B-O-N. He was an English historian uh, in uh, the late 1700s who wrote uh, in the book Decline and Fall of the that's the name of the book, but it's it's about the Roman Empire. And here he's describing the state of Rome at the accession of Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great. And, and listen to how he describes what's going on in that day and time. Uh, and I quote, Rome had reached, about the close of the 6th century, the lowest period of her depression. By the removal of the seat of empire, and the successive loss of the provinces, the sources of public and private opulence were exhausted. The lofty tree under whose shade the nations of the earth had reposed was deprived of its leaves and branches, and the sapless trunk was left to wither on the ground. 
the ministers of command uh, and the messengers of victory no longer met on the Apian or Flaminian way, and the hostile approach of the Lombards was often felt and continually feared. The inhabitants of a potent and peaceful capital who visit without an anxious thought the garden of the adjacent country will faintly picture in their fancy the distress of the Romans. They shut or opened their gates with a trembling hand, beheld from the walls the flames of their houses, and heard the lamentations of their brethren, who were coupled together like dogs and dragged away into distant slavery beyond the sea and the mountains. Such incessant alarms must annihilate the pleasures and interrupt the labors of a rural life, and the Campania of Rome was speedily reduced to the stale of a dreary wilderness in which the land is barren, the waters are impure, and the air is infectious. Curiosity and ambition no longer attracted the nations to the capital of the world, but if chance or necessity directed the steps of a wandering stranger, he contemplated with horror the vacancy and solitude of the city, and might be tempted to ask, where is the senate, and where are the people? In a season of excessive rains, the Tiber swelled above its banks, and rushed with irresistible violence into the valleys of the seven hills. A pestilential disease arose from that stagnation of the deluge, and so rapid was the contagion that fourscore persons expired in an hour in the midst of the solemn procession which implored the mercy of heaven. A society in which marriage is encouraged and industry prevails soon repairs the accidental losses of pestilence and war. But as the far greater part of the Romans was condemned to hopeless indigence and celibacy, the depopulation was constant and visible, and the gloomy enthusiasts might expect the approaching failure of the human race. Yet the number of citizens still exceeded the measure of substance. Substance. Subsistence. <laughs> there we go. Couldn't get it. Uh, their precarious food was supplied with from the harvests of Sicily or Egypt, and the frequent repetition of famine betrays the inattention of the emperor to a distant province. The edifices of Rome were exposed to the same ruin and decay. The moldering fabrics were easily overthrown by inundations, tempests, and earthquakes, and the monks who had occupied the most advantageous stations exulted in their base triumph over the ruins of antiquity. Like Thebes, or Babylon, or Carthage, the name of Rome might have been erased from the earth if the city had not been animated by a vital principle which again restored her to honor and dominion. <clears throat> the power as well as the virtue of the apostles resided with living energy in the breast of their successors. And the chair of Peter, under the reign of Maurice, was occupied by the first and greatest of the name of Gregory. The sword of the enemy was suspended over Rome. It was averted by the mild eloquence and seasonable gifts of the pontiff who commanded the respect of heretics and barbarians. End quote. Now what I just read you uh, is this man Edward Gibbon describing uh, what Rome had become before this Gregory the Great becomes the, the Pope and the Emperor, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, 
uh, but he is the first uh, pope there. Uh, just the total ruination of what Rome had been. It was no longer an empire. It was a, a wasteland. And uh, when this pope takes over, uh, it kind of gives new hope and new life to this city. And so you can see how the people would have uh, flocked to this man uh, and to the power uh, that would have been become his from this this response and and so that's one part of describing how Rome became in the position that it is it is so heavily uh, controlled by this Roman Catholic Church and and how it came about okay so uh, let's describe the second point uh, her hostility towards God so we talked about her hostility uh, towards man in the first part of verse 3. Now let's talk about her hostility towards God in the second part of verse 3. Uh, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. Now this woman, we are later told in verse 18 of this chapter, uh, that it, it it is that great city. Now this is generally to be believed to be Rome, as later clues develop and strengthen this claim. Now, the first sight of this woman in verse 1, John tells us she is sitting upon many waters. Then here she is seen sitting upon a beast. Now, the meaning here is relevant to Roman history. Uh, when the conditions in Rome and in the surrounding countries under the Caesars was reaching the point of ruin when the Catholic Church took over and had its rise to power. Uh, her position of sitting on this beast shows that she will have great power in directing the early movements of the beast. Uh, the beast here represents the kingdom of the Antichrist. The Roman Catholic Church has always flirted with dictators, kings, and other world leaders. In this marriage of sorts, the apostate church will have no difficulty in following this evil pair. Her position of being seated on the beast shows that her prosperity, glory, and dominion will be dependent on and linked with his own. But this is a precarious perch, although she doesn't realize it until too late. Uh, her position is well described by the young lady in the limerick. A smiling young lady from Niger took a ride on the back of a tiger. They came back from the ride with the young lady inside and the smile on the face of the tiger. So there you go. That's how it happens. And that's exactly what happens here as well. And also, uh, and I use this phrase a lot in Sunday school class when I talk about it, um, history repeats itself. It's almost, if you look at American history, uh, every 20 years, just about. Uh, maybe a little longer in sometimes, and then sometimes it's a little shorter. But generally, you can say about every twenty years, stuff repeats. Uh, look at how look at the wars that we've been in. Uh, almost every twenty years, we're good for one. It it just happens that way. Uh, it just uh, that's all you, uh, you. It's just history. We are creatures uh, of habit, and that's the way it is. But but describing this. Uh, I guess you'd say joining uh, of the apostate church with, with this beast 
uh, is, is an event of history repeating itself as well. In 1804, during the French Revolution, Napoleon summoned the Pope, who was Pius VII, to Paris to preside over his coronation, a symbol that the Pope would have influence over his decisions as the leader of France. Then at the last moment, without a word to anyone, he changed the ritual. Waiting until the Pope lifted up the crown, he rudely pushed the Pope aside, seized the crown in both hands, and placed it on uh, his own head. This is Napoleon did this. And this is kind of a picture of how this is going to happen. Uh, this, this church system is thinking, man, look at the power we've got. Uh, yes, we admit that it is due to uh, the power and influence of this beast, uh, the Antichrist that we're following. Although we don't want to tell anybody that's what it is. Uh, but we're gaining power and prestige on our own. And then at the last minute when you, you think that things are going well, the Antichrist comes in and chops the legs out from under this system. And, and that's exactly what happened on that date in 1804. <clears throat> All right. Uh, the third thing, his cruelty towards men. Plural, not man, but men. A man could be represented plural, but I changed it to M-E-N just so the point is clear. Uh, that's the next thing here in verse 3. His cruelty toward men. A scarlet-colored beast. A scarlet-colored beast. Now, this is not just a red. Um, it's what we would describe as blood red. Blood red. That, that's kind of what that means. And this description of the scarlet-colored beast um, uh, lets us know two things about um, the Antichrist here. First of all, uh, it is symbolic of regal character symbolic of regal character, but at the same time, it's symbolic of a ruthless character as well. A ruthless character as well. So, uh, let's look at this first one, symbolic of regal character. Now, back in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 2, it told us there, and the dragon gave him, the Antichrist, his power and his seat and great authority. So, everything that the Antichrist is able to do comes from Satan himself, that's, that's the author of his power and, and his position and how he's able to do it. So this beast represents the final stage of a Gentile world empire headed up by an individual, the Antichrist, who embodies all its characteristics, ambitions, and powers. Now Satan gives the Antichrist his power to rule over the entire earth. And his reign on earth will be nothing short of a nightmare. The book of Daniel uh, in chapter 12 and verse 1 tells us, and there shall be a time of trouble. I don't know how you get anything good out of that. <laughs> a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. If we think some things around here uh, in our current world system are bad, uh, even in our current history, we can go back and look at things under Hitler. We can look at things under Stalin. We can look at things under uh, Putin, we can look at things under Hussein, under Mussolini, none of them, none of them are going to have anything on this coming system. I mean, that's what Daniel says, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. In other words, from the beginning of time when there first was a nation back to Nimrod, when he first set one up, 
all the way to the end. There never, never was one as bad as this one. Okay. I, I, I'm, he, he took the cake. Uh, also, Revelation 12, 12, it tells us, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And that's one reason why Satan gives him such authority and power. He knows his time is short, and he's not looking to conquer anymore because he knows he can't. And we talked about that when we went through chapter 12. Satan knows that he doesn't have the power or the authority uh, to change the outcome. All he can do is increase the amount of destruction. And he's going to do it at the best of his knowledge. So his power is limited to only uh, 42 months, the second three and a half years, that, that great tribulation. That's why it's uh, called that. Uh, Matt, uh, not Matthew, the book of Mark. Chapter 13, verses 19 through 20, tells us, For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. Now, if you think about them verses and read them a couple times and look at what it's actually saying, Several things. One, it emphasizes what Daniel said. There's never going to be a time of trouble like this time since God created the earth to that day. Nothing, nothing will beat how bad this is. And then he gives us a clue, too, in verse 20 at just how rampant Satan's going to be uh, with destroying mankind. And said, and except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. Satan would kill everybody. Do you see that? Except God kept it a short period of time, Satan would have wiped the whole mankind out. But he couldn't do that anyway, because you remember that God had those uh, group of people sealed and would not allow Satan to destroy them. And that, that's where that other lady ran to the wilderness in chapter 12, the nation of Israel. He had them sealed so that Satan couldn't uh, hurt them. Okay, so that describes the uh, uh, the symbolic of regal character. Now let's look at the uh, how it's symbolic of this scarlet-colored beast is symbolic of a ruthless character. Now, either the beast is itself naturally of this color, or it is covered with either fur or a robe of this color. It, it doesn't really say. It just says a scarlet-colored beast. Now, the word scarlet properly denotes a bright red color. Brighter than crimson which is a red color tinged with some blue. Now, the word scarlet here in the Greek is the word kokinos, kokinos, and it is only used five times in the entire New Testament. Matthew 27, 28, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. That was when they were beating Christ before they hung him on the cross. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 through 20. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled book, both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Uh, the third mention is here in verses 3 and in verse 4. 
the other, uh, the fourth time is later in chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city. <clears throat> for in one hour is thy judgment come, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones, and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet, and all fine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble. And it goes on and describes all, and it's just describing how they, they're mourning over that. But there, there's that mention of scarlet there in verse 12. Uh, the fifth time it's used in later in chapter 18 and verse 16. <clears throat> and it says, And saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Now, the color scarlet was obtained by crushing the eggs of the female insect uh, Cocos elisus, if I'm saying that again. Again, this is Latin stuff. It's kind of hard to know the proper pronunciation. I'll tell you what, I'll spell it out for you, and you can look it up so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, Cocos is C-O-C-C-U-S, and then... Elicus or Elisas, however you say it, is I-L-I-C-I-S. So Cocos Elicus, Elisas, however you say it. I apologize, probably butchering that to pieces, but <clears throat> I spelled it out for you so you can look it up yourself. So it's the female insect, uh, which is a small insect, which, which was found living in the shoots of a species of oak in Spain and Western Asia. Now, this was the usual color in the robes of princes, military cloaks, and etc. It is applicable in the description of Papal Rome because this is a favorite color there as well. Thus, it is used in Revelation chapter 12 in verse 3 where the same power is represented under the image of a red dragon. Scarlet is the color <clears throat> of blood, which represents the level of persecution, death, and suffering he will carry out. It also represents the fact that he will kill the woman, the religious system, at the right time and rule alone. <clears throat> now, Albert Barnes had, had this to say about the color scarlet being associated with Roman Catholicism, and I quote, those who are familiar with the descriptions given of papal Rome by travelers and those who have passed much time in Rome will see at once the propriety of this description on the supposition that it was intended to refer to the papacy. I caused this inquiry to be made of an intelligent gentleman who had passed much time in Rome without his knowing my design well, what would strike a stranger on visiting Rome or what would be likely particularly to arrest his attention as remarkable there. And he unhesitatingly replied, the scarlet color. This is the color of the dress of the cardinals, their hats and cloaks and stockings being always of this color. It is the color of the carriages of the cardinals, 
the entire body of the carriage being scarlet, and the trappings of the horses the same. <clears throat> On occasion of public festivals and processions, scarlet is suspended from the windows of the houses along which processions pass. The inner color of the cloak of the Pope is scarlet. His carriage is scarlet. The carpet on which he treads is scarlet. A large part of the dress of the bodyguard of the Pope is scarlet. And no one can take up a picture of Rome without seeing that this color is predominant. <clears throat> I looked through uh, a volume of engravings representing the principal officers and public persons of Rome. There were few in which the scarlet color was not found as con constituting some part of their apparel. In not a few, the scarlet color prevailed almost entirely. In an illustration of the same thought, I introduce here an, ex an extract from a foreign newspaper copied into an American newspaper on February the 22nd, 1851, as an illustration of the fact that the scarlet color is characteristic of Rome and of the readiness with which it is referred to in that respect. Curious costumes, the three new cardinals, the archbishops of Tholos, Reigns, and Besancon, were presented to the president of the French Republic by the Pope's nuncio. They wore red caps, red stockings, black Roman coats lined and bound with red and small cloaks. End quote. So that's just a description of how the scarlet color plays a predominant role <clears throat> in the Roman Catholic system there. All right. Uh, the fourth uh, point here in uh, uh, her unique position uh, is his hostility towards God. In the next part of verse 3 here, his hostility towards God. And that's in the phrase there, full of names of blasphemy. <clears throat> full of names of blasphemy. <clears throat> uh, use of the word full here is noteworthy. Now, in chapter 13, we read that the name of blasphemy is, writ is simply written on the seven heads. <clears throat> but here... Full indicates the beast's opposition to God has now developed into all of its intensity. Now, under the harlots, or Rome's supervision, this beast puts forth blasphemous pretensions worse than in pagan days. <clears throat> While being ridden by the harlot, his powers will be in check. But upon destroying her, the beast will be revealed as the full concentration of all self-dealing, God-opposed principles which have appeared in various forms and degrees up to this point. <clears throat> now, the phrase names of blasphemy include two things. Number one, a reference to the many gods of the Roman Empire. All their names are insults to God, as each one is a substitute for his supreme and unique authority. No one has the right to the name of God save the only true God. Number two, it is a reference to the many titles of the emperor. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm just, man, pollen's just terrible today, so I'm trying to get through this, but it's kind of hard and you can't hardly breathe. But anyway, uh, now what I meant by uh, the uh, titers, titles of the emperor, we're going to go over a couple of these. There's, there's different ones to be used. 
uh, Sebastos or Augustus was one of those titles. And that title means to be reverenced. <clears throat> and we know by according to the Bible that reverence belongs to God alone. That's not saying respect. Now we should respect every uh, human, but reverence it belongs to God alone. Uh, <clears throat> the other title, divus, is the Latin term, or thea, theos is the Greek term, which means divine. And of course, to God alone belongs that adjective. Um, the title soter means savior, which is uniquely the title of Jesus Christ himself, the savior. Uh, the other title, Dominus in Latin and Curios in Greek, it means Lord, which is the very name of God. Now here, I would like to interject the fact that the title Lord is not a Catholic thing <clears throat> so much as it is an English monarchy thing. Uh, under the power of the kings of England, and, and I'm sure in France too, uh, uh, barons and lords became rulers of the lands uh, and people would have to pay them for the right to work those lands and things. That's totally against what the Bible teaches, just so you know that, okay? <laughs> so if your <clears throat> uh, goal in life is to be a lord of something, um, that's anti-biblical. Anti-biblical. So uh, this also shows... Uh, the Antichrist's ability to speak great words against God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 tell us, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Okay, so <clears throat> that falling away had to come, and we've talked in the history of chapter 17, how that falling away happened. Uh, it was basically you had the pagan religious system, and you had Christianity. And as the two faced each other, Instead of Christianity holding out and opposing all that was pagan, uh, the pagan religious system started seeping in. It started having more contact and more contact and more contact to where they were joined together <clears throat> until they become basically working together. All right. Uh, the next phrase here, having seven heads. Okay, here we go. Getting into some of this symbology stuff that a lot of people are scared of. Now, the seven heads. Many think that the seven heads here are the seven heads which the city of Rome was built on. By name, they are Palatinus, Quirinalis, Aventinus, Celius, Viminalis, Esquilinus, and Capitolinus. Now, the problems associated with this thought. First of all, Verse 9 tells us these seven heads are seven mountains. Seven mountains are not given as the identifying mark of any city. Only that the woman sitteth on them. Now, Rome actually sits on 
ten hills, not seven mountains. The hills actually differ with each commentator. So, there you go. The highest of the ten hills was the Janiculum, I think J-A-N-I-C-U-L-U-M, which is 275 feet above sea level. That's scarcely a mountain. And let me tell you, <laughs> I know that for a fact. This past weekend, as a matter of fact, uh, my wife's family, uh, we went to here in North Carolina. I love the mountains. I'm telling you, love the mountains. And we went to uh, Beach Mountain, which is around Boone, where Appalachian State is, University. Uh, the cabin we stayed in was, uh, I think it was 182 feet below, one mile above sea level. We were 182 feet short of being one mile above sea level. And let me tell you, them winds up there, it was like 70 mile an hour. It snowed one night. Uh, but out the back window, uh, you could see, and as long as it was clear, you could see for miles and miles and miles. Now, you talk about, there are some mountains around this world, let me tell you. Grandfather Mountain's not, uh, that's the area we were in, it, by, by the way, Beach Mountain's near Grandfather Mountain. <clears throat> but, just letting you know, just because they say it's a hill doesn't make it a mountain, <laughs> okay? What's, what's the, uh, Popular statement, don't make a mountain out of a mole hill. These are mole hills. These are not mountains. Come on. Uh, now, the highest one, that geniculum, is 275 feet. Really? The others vary between 150 and 200 feet above sea level. Uh, it's barely even described as a hill, really, at that point. <clears throat> but what that is right there, that's showing you the example of man trying to make nature fit into what he reads in the Bible, trying to take what he thinks is, and, and make it fit. So we already know there's not seven distinct mountains, there's ten. And depending on the commentator, they all the names all change. So <clears throat> uh, another fine example of that, when, when I, like I've told you before, I was stationed in Germany. Well, the second half of my career, I guess you'd say, I was stationed at the U.S. Embassy in Bonn, Germany. Now, to get the bond from Heidelberg, or from the main highway, really, anytime we went south, which we'd have to, which is where our headquarters was, you had to come through a place called uh, Königswinter, Germany. And within Königswinter, Germany, there was a place by the title of Siebengeberg. Siebengeberg. Siebengeberg, in, in German, means seven mountains. Uh, seven are most prominent, but there are actually 40 hills in that area from what I've read. <clears throat> now, based on geographical markers alone, Siebengeberg could also be considered a spot for what is mentioned here in this passage. Uh, the Palais Schomburg, the German Chancellor's residence, is located here. It is the location of the 1976 G7 summit. Uh, the Palais was used as the signing of the treaty about the creation of a currency, economy, and social union in 1990 by representatives of both states, East and West Germany. So it's a, an important factor in German history here and culture here and world history. Uh, so, you know, they could throw their hat in, hey, well, we're these seven kings, you know, just based on the fact you need seven mountains to be qualified. There it is. <clears throat> but... 
Back to this. The woman is described as sitting on these mountains, which are identified as the beast's heads. Now, if one of the seven heads, as we are told in Revelation 13, 1, is wounded in, in verse 3, and then this wounded head is held to be the Antichrist, then how can one be consistent in identifying these mountains as Italian hills or German hills or American hills or any other nation's hills? Now, others believe uh, these seven heads are the seven successive forms of government in Rome, that being kings, consuls, dictators, decimers, military tribunes, Roman emperors, and then German emperors. Even more success, uh, suggest, sorry, uh, that this is the first seven emperors of the Roman Empire and issue forth that Nero, as the seventh, is described as the symbolic representation of the Antichrist. Now, in verse 1, we are told the woman sits on many waters, uh, which is metaphorical. Since this is interpreted in verse 15, the waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Then in verse 3, we are told the woman sits on a scarlet-colored beast, which is, again, symbolic as it is explained to us in verse 8. Mountains are used to describe kingdoms in the prophetic scriptures. Jeremiah 51.25 <clears throat> Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroyeth all the earth, and I will stretch out mine hand upon thee, and roll thee down from the rocks, and will make thee a burnt mountain. Daniel chapter 2, verse 35. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became, uh, became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. These kingdoms stand out in the historical landscape like mountains do in the physical landscape. Okay? So that's the description of the seven uh, heads. Now let's look at this phrase about the ten horns. <clears throat> These ten horns represent ten kings over ten kingdoms. Now the seven heads and the ten horns indicate that this beast is a representative of the dragon, Satan, mentioned in chapter 12, verse 3, who also had seven heads and ten horns. As the dragon is fiery red, so the beast is blood red, implying blood guiltiness and deep-dyed sin. The scarlet color is also symbolic of kingship. Kingship. Okay, the final point here uh, in the first part of... Uh, well, you know what? Actually, let's stop there because I'm getting into the next point, which is her unlimited prosperity. Okay, so that's all of verse 3, uh, and that's been about 50 minutes, 47 minutes, technically. Uh, so that's that's quite a bit of information there. But uh, again, I hope that clarifies some of the points, uh, and again, some of these intimidating uh, statements about the, the crowns and the heads and the horns and all this, the, car, the colors and all that. If you take your time and read through it, um, again, it's either to be taken literally 
this is a simple rule of the book of Revelation. Number one, everything that's written in the book should either be taken literally, or number two, if it is figuratively, then God explains what it is. And, and we use that example there. Uh, that verse three, first part is explained in verse five, and it's explained again in verse eight. So it, 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 God is not going to leave you out there to hang, hang and wonder what is going on. Again, this is not an intimidating book as long as you take the time to study it. And if you're like me, you have to write it down because I'll forget stuff all the time. So <laughs> I have to write it down so I can remember. Okay. Uh, once again, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Um, remember to pray for me. Pray for each other. Pray for the other listeners of this podcast. Um, pray for your local church. And pray for our country, especially. Uh, and let's remember those in uh, the Ukraine and Russia who are suffering because of what's going on over there. And uh, they're certainly in our thoughts and prayers. I, I know there's guilty parties on both sides. There's no one party uh, totally guilty. I know that. But still, it always seems to be the common man that suffers. And so they certainly need our prayers. Okay? All right. Uh, thank you for listening. <clears throat> I hope you have a great day. God bless you.